the explosive new film, Flynn, Deliver the Truth, Whatever the Cost, exposes secrets behind the government's takedown of General Michael Flynn. Flynn knew what the intel world had been up to. He ordered the first audit of the use of contractors. This set off alarm bells. He told the truth. He was the most dangerous person for Donald Trump to hire. They had to get rid of Flynn. Flynn, Deliver the Truth, Whatever the Cost. Available now. Watch it today. Go to SalemNow.com. SalemNow.com. City, WLCC, Brandon. Faith Talk Tampa. Download the Faith Talk Tampa app. Or listen on TuneIn and Odyssey. The following is sponsored by Verse by Verse Ministries and is pre-recorded. Money isn't sin. Money is not sin. I don't want you to hear me say money is sin because I have not said that. People I have found tend to hear what they want to hear. Money is not sin. It is amoral. It's not good. It's not bad. The Bible condemns the love of money, not money. It's how you use it and your attitude towards it that is the issue, not money. It's not sinful being wealthy. It's not sinful being poor. It's your attitude towards your wealth. It's your attitude towards your poverty. That's the real issue. Matthew chapter 6, verse 19. Jesus said, Do not lay up for yourselves treasures upon earth where moth and rust destroy and where thieves break in and steal. And his point here is that if you focus on this world and all your savings in the bank and you don't serve the Lord and you're not investing in eternal things, then realize you're going to lose it. Someday you're going to die. And you're going to lose it. And here he was speaking about moth and rust destroying and thieves breaking in and stealing. Thieves can break in and steal. They can take this from you, but they can't take away your eternal rewards. suppose a covetous person is like? Are they rich and want even more? Or are they less than rich but still want more than they have? Pastor Steve is going to start our session today in Romans 7, where he will show us what a covetous person looks like. So if you're able to follow along in your Bible, please turn to Romans 7, but keep a finger in Hebrews 13, because we'll be back in Hebrews shortly. We have been studying about godly living. And so far, we have talked about brotherly love, and now we're talking about loving money. I think you already know which is more important. Steve Kreloff, the pastor of Lakeside Community Chapel in Clearwater, Florida, is our teacher, and he's ready to get started. Let's look at Romans chapter 7, because we're going to see a covetous man. In Romans chapter 7, the apostle Paul begins to talk in verse 7 about the law. Actually, he has been talking about the law, but his own experience with the law. And he says in verse 7 of Romans 7, what shall we say then? Is the law sin? May it never be. How could the law be sin? The law is holy. On the contrary, I would not have come to know sin except through the law. For I would not have known about coveting if the law had not said you shall not covet. But sin, taking opportunity through the commandment, produced in me coveting of every kind. For apart from the law, sin is dead. And I was once alive apart from the law. But when the commandment came, sin became alive and I died. 
It was inward coveting that convinced Paul he was sinful. Paul thought that if he just did those outward things that all good Jewish boys did in keeping the Ten Commandments and the other commandments, there's really 613 commandments in the Old Testament, if he did all of that, then he was fine. Everything was fine. He could cover the external things in his life and convince himself and deceive himself that he was actually doing that and convince others he was doing it. But what he couldn't deny was the fact that inwardly he was craving to have things. And he knew that the commandment said, thou shalt not covet. He knew that he couldn't keep the law. No one can keep the law. This was his true inward desire. And I said this before, lusting after things isn't limited to people who don't have money. It's not just for people who are poor who say, oh, if I only had. Wealthy people covet too. In fact, the multimillionaire John D. Rockefeller was once asked how much more money it would take to make him satisfied. You know what he said? A little bit more. It was also the multimillionaire Andrew Carnegie who said millionaires seldom smile. You know why? Because they're never satisfied. And you may think, you may say, yeah, if I had their money, I'd be satisfied. I doubt it. Not if you don't apply these truths to your lives. I doubt it. Because if Rockefeller had that problem and Carnegie had that problem, why are we any different? Unless we apply the truth of Scripture to our lives because it's part of the fall of man. It's part of our nature to want more and just more and more. Now, apparently, the Hebrews were tempted to love money, and so are we. So let's think through this basic issue of loving money. Let's just think through this and look at a few scriptures. And let me say this as you're turning to Matthew chapter 6. Money isn't sin. Money is not sin. I don't want you to hear me say money is sin because I have not said that. People I have found tend to hear what they want to hear. Money is not sin. It is amoral. It's not good. It's not bad. The Bible condemns the love of money, not money. It's how you use it and your attitude towards it that is the issue, not money. It's not sinful being wealthy. It's not sinful being poor. It's your attitude towards your wealth. It's your attitude towards your poverty. That's the real issue. Matthew chapter 6, verse 19. Jesus said, Do not lay up for yourselves treasures upon earth where moth and rust destroy and where thieves break in and steal. And his point here is that if you focus on this world and all your savings in the bank and you don't serve the Lord and you're not investing in eternal things, then realize you're going to lose it. Someday you're going to die and you're going to lose it. And here he was speaking about moth and rust destroying and thieves breaking in and stealing. Thieves can break in and steal. They can take this from you but they can't take away your eternal rewards. Notice also verse 20 went on to say, but lay up for yourselves treasures in heaven where neither moth nor rust destroy and where thieves do not break in or steal. That's eternal. And then verse 24, no one can serve two masters for either he will hate the one and love the other or he will hold to one and despise the other. You cannot serve God and mammon and mammon is just another way of saying riches. If you set your affections upon money, you cannot serve God. You just cannot. You know why? You can't serve two masters. If you say, I'll serve money and I'll serve God, no, your money will come between your serving God because you'll let money dictate what you'll do rather than God. You cannot serve two masters. One of them will not be your master if you serve two masters. You can't because they're going to conflict. And if you put money and God on the same level, believe me, you're not going to obey God. You're going to obey money. And let money dictate your behavior. First Timothy chapter six, 
This is so very, very helpful. Beginning at verse 6, and we'll come back to this later, but the Apostle Paul wrote, but godliness actually is a means of great gain when it's accompanied by contentment. And so he's speaking about contentment here. For we have brought nothing into this world, so we cannot take anything out of it. And if we have food and covering with these, we shall be content. But those who want to get rich, and that's the issue, not those who are rich or those who are poor, those who want to get rich fall into temptation and a snare and many foolish and harmful desires which plunge men into ruin and destruction. For the love of money, not money, but the love of money is a root, not the only root, but a root of all sorts of evil, and some by longing for it, there it is, craving, longing for it, have wandered away from the faith and pierced themselves with many a pang. So Paul says that the love of money leads to all kinds of evil. Now, what kind of evil could loving money lead to? You could come up with some things in your thinking. It wouldn't take but a moment. The Bible gives us some illustrations. Luke chapter 12 Beginning at verse 13, this is a very important passage on money and loving it and attitudes towards it. Someone in the crowd said to him, teacher, tell my brother to divide the family inheritance with me. Oh, isn't that interesting? Do families get divided over inheritance? Have you ever heard anything like that? Who's in the will? Who's not in the will? I should get more money? Why did my brother or sister get more money? How could you do that? I took care of you. And you're going to leave more to them? So they said to Jesus, tell my brother to divide the family inheritance with me. I love what the Lord said in verse 14. He said to him, man, who made me a judge or arbiter over you? Is that my role to tell you this? You guys work it out. Stop being so covetous, what he's saying. And he said to them, beware and be on your guard against every form of greed. That's the sin here. For not even when one has an abundance does his life consist of his possessions. And he told them a parable saying, the land of a certain rich man was very productive. And he began reasoning to himself saying, what shall I do since I have no place to store my crops? And he said, this is what I will do. I will tear down my barns and build larger ones. And there I will store all my grain and my goods. And I will say to my soul, soul, you have many goods laid up for many years to come. Take your ease, drink and be merry. But God said to him, you fool. This very night your soul is required of you, and now who will own what you have prepared? So is the man who lays up treasure for himself and is not rich toward God. The love of money has divided many families, and it deceives, and it deceived this man in the parable into thinking that his life was about possessing things. That's what he lived for. And Jesus said, someday he will come to the end of his life, and what will his money do at that point? When you die, your goods and riches do nothing for you. Money deceives you, loving money, I should say, deceives you into thinking that life is about possessing things when it's really about having a close relationship with Jesus Christ. That's the problem. That's really the problem. The love of money. So in this case, the love of money deceived a man, deceived a man all of his life. The love of money also divided this family. Mark chapter 10, you don't need to turn there, but I'm sure you're familiar, most of you are familiar with the story of the rich young ruler who came to Jesus and wanted to have eternal life. 
Most of us would have just whipped out a tract and say, read this and pray a sinner's prayer and you're saved. But Jesus made it difficult for him because Jesus knew that this man was not to a point of repentance, that this man did not recognize he was a sinner, and you cannot accept Jesus Christ as your Savior unless you see yourself as a condemned sinner. And so Jesus said, have you kept the commandments? And they say, oh, sure I have, sure I have, which was not true. Because the Bible says no one keeps the commandments. And so Jesus said, well, I'll tell you what I want you to do. I want you to sell everything you have, give it to the poor, and then come and follow me. And the Bible says this man went away sad because he had much wealth. What was our Lord doing? He was putting his finger on the man's sin of covetousness. And the man was not willing to repent of that sin. And as far as we know, he never did come back to Jesus, never did turn around. How close you can be to the kingdom and yet so far. So this man, it cost him eternal life because he loved money. And when you love money, it will lead to all kinds of evil you never imagine yourself capable of. It was for the love of money that Judas Iscariot betrayed the Lord Jesus, just for 30 pieces of silver. It was for the love of money that Ananias and Sapphira tried to deceive the early church due to greed. It's for the love of money that people kill. People actually kill for money. And it destroys relationships with loved ones over money. And people lose their ministries and effectiveness over the love of money. And the question is this, do you love money? Do I love money? I've been asking myself that all week. And you need to ask yourself that today. Do I love money? Are you guilty of loving money? How can you know if you love money? How can you really know it? Because when you love money, you are in content with what you have. You feel like if you just had a little more, then you could be happy. That's why as we look back at Hebrews chapter 13, the next phrase after let your way of life be free from the love of money is this phrase, being content with what you have. That's the opposite of loving money is being content with what you have. An individual who loves money isn't satisfied with what he has. He has to have more money. A bigger house, though his house is certainly big enough now to contain he and his family and 18 families. Now, you realize I'm being facetious and exaggerating, but if you feel like you just have to keep getting bigger and bigger, it's not contentment. Or you have to have nicer clothes. You have very nice clothes, but you don't have the latest styles. I mean, the latest. So you have to have more and more. Or a newer car, not because you need a new car, but because your neighbor just got a newer car or a new car and so you have to have it, or a better vacation, not because your vacations weren't good, because you're never satisfied. A person who is not content will never sit back and say, I'm satisfied. Satisfied with my house, with my clothes, satisfied with my paycheck, with my car, with my vacation. It just doesn't have to be any better. If God wants to make it better, fine, but it doesn't have to be. See, it's an attitude of the heart. It's an attitude of the heart that says it's never enough, never enough. I want to just balance something here. There is nothing wrong with saying, I need something, I'd like to get that. God's not condemning that. There's nothing wrong with buying something. What sin is coveting something. I must have this. I mean, we all have things that we'd like to get. Listen, the Bible says God has given us all things to enjoy. There's nothing wrong going out and getting new clothes. But when you have an attitude in your heart that says, I must have this, I crave this, I won't be happy unless I have it, that's sin. And I want to just balance it even more. We're not talking about making wise decisions about buying something. That's fine. In fact, you have to buy things. It is not spiritual. 
I address those people who think it's spiritual to say, I can't spend on myself. Though my clothes could peel off of me, I'll not spend on myself. I'll give to the Lord's work. I'll give to missions. That's spiritual. Listen, go out and get some clothes. We've been seeing the same clothes for 15 years. Go out. It's all right. It's all right. You don't have to feel guilty about it. So we're not talking about depriving yourself. We're talking about an attitude. An attitude. There's balance. God wants us to be content with what we have and not to let money drive us to want more. You see, the sin is getting for the sake of getting, not because there are legitimate needs. So how do we become contented people when it is just so tempting for us to be discontent and want more? I said there were two basic truths in this passage about contentment. The first one is the enemy of contentment, which is what? Covetousness. It's the enemy. The second key truth here is the way to contentment. The way to contentment. And we see the answer in verse 5, the end of verse 5, having said, be content with what you have. For he himself has said, I will never desert you, nor will I ever forsake you. I'll never leave you. I'll never forsake you. Now, this statement is a promise from God. In fact, it's given many places in the Old Testament. Probably our writer is thinking about the time when God said this to Joshua after Joshua succeeded Moses. But this was many places in the Old Testament. It's just a tried and proven truth. God cares for his own during their greatest times of need. Now, the point that the writer to the Hebrews is making in using this promise is to assure his struggling readers that God will take care of them. Regardless of what happens to them, regardless of persecution or the loss of property or whatever happens, he is still there to care for them. He will never leave them. He will never forsake them. He remains. Even if their property doesn't remain, he remains. And you have God's word for it. This isn't a promise just for them. It's a promise for every believer. You have God's word for it that he will care for you. He will supply your needs. He won't necessarily supply your wants. He won't necessarily supply your luxuries. He could do that, but he won't necessarily do that. But you have a promise that he will supply your needs. He won't turn his back on you. It is his responsibility. And I might add, it is his pleasure to take care of you, just like it is the pleasure of an earthly father to take care of his children. Let's turn back to Luke chapter 12. We looked at this about the parable, the man who was deceived. But Jesus went on to say something else in Luke chapter 12. Verse 22, he said to his disciples, this is just after he said, don't lay up treasure for yourself and not be rich towards God. He said to his disciples, for this reason, I say to you, do not be anxious for your life as to what you shall eat, nor for your body as to what you shall put on. For life is more than food and the body than clothing. They apparently were worried about this. How are we getting the money to clothe ourselves and to eat? Jesus said, consider the birds, for they neither sow nor reap, and they have no storeroom nor barn, yet God feeds them. How much more valuable are you than birds? I mean, you think you're more significant to God than birds? Of course you are. Although birds are significant to him. And which of you, by being anxious, can add a single cubit to his lifespan? If then you cannot do even a little thing, why are you anxious about the other matters? Consider the lilies, how they grow. They neither toil nor spin, but I tell you that even Solomon in all his glory did not clothe himself like one of these. If God so arrays the grass in the field, which is alive today and tomorrow is thrown into the furnace, how much more will he clothe you, O men of little faith? And do not seek what you shall eat. 
and what you shall drink, and do not keep worrying. For all these things the nations, he means the unsaved Gentiles of the world, eagerly seek, but your Father knows that you need these things. But seek for his kingdom, and these things should be added to you. In other words, just relax. Don't seek these things. Don't worry about these things. Just relax. Do what you're supposed to do, and God will take care of you. He's not talking about being passive here and complacent and don't work and see if food comes on the table. He's not talking about that. The Bible addresses being a sluggard and being lazy in the book of Proverbs. This is just saying, hey, you just do what you're supposed to, and you live for me, and I'll take care of you. We have a heavenly father who loves us, and we need to be reminded of that, that he has promised to meet our needs. Therefore, and listen to this, and I think this is key, to be discontent with what you have is to really accuse God of not meeting your needs. It is really to be dissatisfied with God and his sovereign plan for your life. That's really the issue. When we aren't satisfied with what we have, then we're really saying, God, I'm not satisfied with the way you're treating me. I'm not satisfied with the way you're taking care of me. I think you can do a better job, and I'd like to see it pronto. That's a blasphemous attitude, but that's really our attitude, even though we may not say those words. But God does take care of us, and he gives us exactly what we need. Let's turn back to 1 Timothy again. 1 Timothy chapter 6. In verse 5, it's an interesting statement, and constant friction between men of depraved mind and deprived of the truth who suppose that godliness is a means of gain. Now, you thought there were only certain preachers today who went into being on the media, like television and other places, who just wanted your money and thought that that's what they're in it for. No, no, they had religious crooks back then, too. They had, in verse 5, speaks about people who suppose that godliness is a means of gain. They just go in the religion business. They'll be religious hucksters and they'll pry upon people and they'll get money and they'll be wealthy and rich. And Paul is dealing with them. He says they're terrible. They're not believers. But then he contrasts that in verse 6. But godliness actually, he writes, is a means of great gain when it's accompanied by contentment. What is he talking about here? Having said that some people think that their pretense of godliness can make them money, Paul states that true godliness is a means of great gain, but it has to be accompanied by contentment. What does he mean? He means as a truly godly person sees himself as under the providential care of God. He has gained everything God wants him to have, therefore he's content with whatever he has. When godliness is combined with contentment, it rests in a loving God who gives us everything we need. When you are truly godly, you are content. Because a truly godly person says that I have everything that God wants me to have. Everything, do you realize, that you have comes from God. It's not because you worked hard. It's because God has given you all things. Listen, there are a lot of people who work hard that don't have as much as people who work less than them. And he goes on to say this. Notice chapter 6, the same passage, verse 7 and 8. This is great. For we have brought nothing into this world. Isn't that an understatement? And so we cannot take anything out of it either. And if we have food and clothing with this, we shall be content. But are we? When you came into this world, what possessions did you have? Nothing. And I've got news for you. You are leaving with no possessions either. You never see a hearse carrying a U-Haul, have you? (laughs) Never. No. You come into this world having nothing. You leave this world having nothing in terms of material things. A person says, well, how much did he leave behind? Everything. Everything he left behind. What is he going to take with him? Nothing. So we ought to be content with whatever God gives us between birth and death. That's the point. 
Because it's more than you started out with. You started out with nothing. So anything you get, you ought to be thankful for. It's far more than what we came into this world having, and it's far more than what we deserve. The only thing we deserve is hell. It's far more than what we deserve. So he gives us food. He gives us a covering for our bodies, our basic needs. That's more than we had when we were born. And if he gives you more things, and everybody here has more things. If you live in this country, you have more than this. And most of us have a lot more. Then just see it as icing on the cake. That's all. Icing on the cake, not something you deserve and you need more of. See, now that is not the American way. I'm going to tell you something that just goes against the grain of society. You need to look at whatever you have, and we have far more than most people, and just say, Lord, thank you. I don't deserve it. You want to take it away from me? That's fine, too. Just as Job said, the Lord gives, the Lord takes, and that's fine. That's a contented man. That's the attitude that we ought to have. And if God should choose to give one of his children more money than you, then don't be jealous. That's just God's sovereign plan for them. I have figured out a long time ago that probably the reason I'm not very wealthy is because I couldn't handle a lot of wealth. On our verse-by-verse program today, Pastor Steve gave us an excellent breakdown of godliness and contentment. He pointed out that even in the Apostle Paul's day, there were those who used religious means to gain money. That's not something new to our day. The love of money certainly denotes someone who doesn't trust in God. Again, though, it is our attitude or motives that are so important. When we fully realize that anything we call ours is not really ours but God's, then we can see our contentment grow. Pastor Steve Kreloff has much more to teach us in the series that we are calling Biblical Instructions for Godly Living. And I hope you're enjoying this teaching and applying it to your life. Pastor Steve will be with us on our next Verse by Verse program. So please join us then. Three-star general Michael J. Flynn, head of the Pentagon Intelligence Agency, knew all the government's dirty secrets. He was one of the most respected generals in the military. Flynn knew what the intel world had been up to. He understood its funding. He ordered the first audit of the use of contractors. This set off alarm bells. The explosive new documentary, Flynn, deliver the truth, whatever the cost, and covers the facts behind this scandal. Flynn told the truth. He was the most dangerous person for Donald Trump to hire. I find out the worst enemy that I'm going to face in my life is right here in America. They took my assessment and they wanted me to change it. I was like, I'm not changing it. They had to get rid of Flynn. With in-depth interviews, archival footage, and never-before-seen personal record to the man behind the headlines. I just felt like I was drowning. Flynn. Deliver the truth, whatever the cost. Available now. Watch it today. Go to salemnow.com. salemnow.com. <laughs> 